0: And welcome to another edition of We Are History, the only history podcast where one of the presenters actually remembers most of what they are retelling. Thank you, a... Angela. Yes, in <laughs> fact, I do remember. because Johnny's old. That's what I was saying, there, just it's to be comedy. clear.
1: I do, old? I do remember the events of this week's edition. Ah, so do I. Because we are doing some late 20th and even 21st century history in the land of my forefathers, my spiritual home. Or well, Maidenhead? No... It's just where we moved after the famine, about 120 years after the famine, to be fair. Today's episode is about the rights of women in modern Ireland and how the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had over all supposedly moral issues, how that society denied women access to the pill, denied them divorce, the right to abortion, and even the right to work after they were married Mm. um, for for many public sector and bank workers, etc. So women teachers no problem but married and teaching oh my god what a scandal you should be in the home making your husband's tea
0: strange way of thinking isn't it should be said though that this attitude wasn't limited to just the catholics by the way um, when reverend ian paisley loudest voice in the north for unionism and the protestant church when he was asked a difficult question by a female journalist he boomed and i really should be able to do the do accent it. um but he's he boomed, you should be at home cooking your husband's dinner.
1: You should, should be, be at, at home, home cooking, cooking your, your husband's dinner. 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 <laughs> you yo, yo, yo. should be at home. Anyway, you get the idea. So, yes, <laughs> and of course, all of Western society was plagued by misogyny and sexism, homophobia and social conservatism. Ireland was not unique in that. It's just that compared to the UK or other Western European countries or other English-speaking societies around the world, such as USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland was particularly repressed and under the subtle but almost total control of the Catholic Church. Mm. So, Angela, my inspiration for this... Uh, was the book We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole You've been uh, talking about this book for I know. a long time yeah. John. so I'm glad we're finally doing something yeah, based on it It's part personal but most, mostly it's social history of Ireland um, in the lifetime of that fine writer
0: So let's do what I like to do, John go Let's back. go back a little bit for context um, Ireland gains its independence from the UK in 1921 You can listen to our podcast on the Easter Rising of 1916 Indeed. to hear about that And partition meant that most of the Protestants in Ireland were not part of this new state. So Ireland declares itself a republic after the war
1: and it's no longer under the British crown. So Ireland was free was it, Angela? Mm. It was free from the rule of London to a large degree. But as so often in a society that has suffered repression, there was another form of oppression waiting in the wings. Yes,
0: indeed. So the Republic of Ireland, the 26 counties that made up the Irish Free State, was overwhelmingly Catholic and very devout Catholic to, not just turn up for the odd mass in the hope of getting your kids into the middle-class church school like it is here. Um, so Ireland was obviously a, a fully functioning democracy. Uh, women had the vote from 1918 as part of the United Kingdom, and in fact, did you know, well I know you knew John, because it's in your notes, but I did know this. The first woman elected to Westminster ever was an Irish woman, It was Constance Markovitz, um, but she didn't take her seat in Westminster because she was a Sinn Féin MP. So it's always, was she the first woman in Parliament? Good Technically, pub, yes, but... Good you know. pub quiz
1: question. Absolutely. Yes, I've had it yes, a few times. Absolutely. That? It's always a good one. People can argue about the wording of the question. We yeah. love that. So Eamon de Valera, who's like the father of the nation, was determined to model Ireland to be everything that England was not. So where Britain was industrial, Ireland would be a rural economy, England was... Protestant, Ireland would be Catholic. The Republic of Ireland made its religion part of its national identity. And the overwhelming sense I got from reading Fintan O'Toole's book, and also um, another book I read, Ireland, the Autobiography, a collection of essays and articles edited by John Bowman, was that Ireland was like this sort of people theocracy where the church set all the moral codes for society. And that's
0: never been a problem to any society, that no, when the church sets it's the th- moral codes.
1: Yep. When the church says what you've got to do, it always ends well. Laws didn't need to be aggressively enforced because almost the entire population accepted and believed what they were told at church on a Sunday. So early on in that book, O'Toole describes how on the weekend he was born in 1958, the Dublin Theatre Festival cancelled an adaptation of James Joyce's Ulysses following an expression of disapproval by the Archbishop of Dublin.
0: Again, you know, cancelling works of art has always turned out well, yes. you know.
1: I know. So no police were called, no doors were locked or edict issued. The Archbishop just had to say he didn't approve of something and it didn't happen. The poor writer had made sure the text wasn't going to offend anyone. He had purged the of any blasphemous material, but Samuel Beckett withdrew three plays from the festival as a result. Sean O'Casey banned all productions of his plays in Ireland in his lifetime. So this is not a particularly significant episode in Irish cultural history, but it sort of illustrates how things were in Ireland at the time.
0: Yeah, the Republic's severe censorship regime meant that Irish cinema goers would have seen a version of Casablanca that cut out any reference to Rick and Ilsa's affair in Paris. So we'll always have Paris. Oh, really? What did you do? Go up the Eiffel Tower? I'm saying this, John, because you've written it in the note. I've never seen Casablanca. I've
1: you never have seen Casablanca? Like, Brace yourself,
0: John. Do you want to hear some other films Bond. I've never seen? Oh, I've never God. seen a single James Bond film. That's OK. OK, I've never seen Indiana Jones.
1: OK, well, they're, they're fun. But okay, Casablanca yeah. is a masterpiece. You've got yeah, to watch okay. it. OK, <laughs> Stay um, well, that's my homework for next week. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a great political film. Yeah, it's about, I don't
0: know why I've never watched it. It's about it's love, just... it's
1: about love versus duty. It's about, you know... Oh, what
0: are you, the Casablanca advertising I bloody love <laughs> Casablanca. <laughs> I will watch Casablanca.
1: <laughs> anyway. Anyway,
0: <laughs> Island wasn't... Oppressed by the Catholic Church with nuns wielding batons and controlling water cannons. It wasn't a violent suppression yeah. from a religion. Priests weren't rounding up their congregation with batons and riot shields. The only torture for most of the population were the really long sermons on Sunday morning. You know, nobody was lo- arrested and locked up for criticising the church. It wasn't like other... It wasn't like Iran or religion. something. No, exactly. No, no. So, you know, it's quite interesting that people still... Did as they were told. Yeah, and... they went along
1: with it. But, yeah. there was, there was, but there was still terrible suffering inflicted on powerless people by the church. Ooh. Sexually abused children with no one to turn to. Young mothers forcibly separated from their babies. Babies and girls buried in secret. Girls enslaved in laundries. Again, sexual abuse by priests was, of course, not unique to Ireland. Uh, but I would argue the overall oppression was worse in the Republic because of the stranglehold that the church had over the populace. And the Irish establishment and the absolute impunity enjoyed by the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in the Republic.
0: That's it, that These things went on and everyone was quite happy to sweep it under the carpet yeah, because yeah. of the power of the church all of this because the church knew best no one's going to question the word of the priest or the nuns or the bishops who are beyond criticism or scrutiny and society had such strict notions of the sanctity of the Catholic church and therefore they could get away with it exactly
1: so we pick up our story in 1970 which is uh, as good as any place to start that is the year that the Irish Women's Liberation Movement was founded now you must be glad Angela that I'm doing another one about feminism yes John
0: explains feminism to me part 7 Seven hundred and twenty-three. So, <laughs> so if
1: I could just talk over you about this feminism. So the uh, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, they published a manifesto called Chains or Change, and they were invited onto the Late Late Show, which is a very famous evening show on Irish TV, to discuss it. And the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister, was watching this show at home, and he decided to head down to the studio to answer them directly.
0: Wow, well, imagine that. <laughs> well, I'll go down there and deal with it now. That's what happens when you live in a small country. It's just down the road. It's, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you imagine like, that in Britain. Prime Minister. To sit at home watching Question Time or something, thinking that's not right. I'll pop down there myself and answer it on air. <laughs> yeah. So Gareth
1: Fitzgerald told the women live on air that these problems were the women's fault for never having asked for change before. And of course, they got mad with him, and there was a massive screaming match on the telly. Oh
0: my god! That oh, it's, it's always, a woman's, fault. It's always and a woman's fault. In some way, it's always a women's fault. Um, and after that, attention grabbing exchange, the. IWLM, as we'll call them from now on, on, uh, held their first public meeting in Dublin and over a thousand women turned up.
1: Yes. Now, I don't think it would be exaggerating to say that in Ireland at this time, (laughs) the Women's Liberation Movement had their work cut out. So in 1970 in Ireland, a woman could not get divorced. She could not get access to contraception. Rape was not illegal in marriage. There was obviously no abortion. A woman couldn't sit on a jury. Uh, I mean, technically, if she was a property holder, but nearly all the property holders were men. And just the very levels of poverty in the countryside impacted women the hardest.
0: Always does, doesn't it? that—that yeah. that, The thing about divorce, I think I just, I knew that, but I hadn't really thought that in the 70s, you could be trapped in an abusive marriage and there's nothing you can do about it yes. as a woman. So the 1961 census showed that 75% of rural dwellings got their water still from a well, fountain or pump. Right. 12% of homes had a hot water tap. Just twelve percent, and a survey of the Irish countrywoman revealed a third of a woman's life was spent carrying water. And I don't mean like you know around the belly area like I do. I mean actually <laughs> yeah, carrying one, yeah. water. It's like
1: sort of sort of sort of African sort of yeah, village in the sixties. Yeah, this is in the rural island, but uh, so that was you know that was the lot of women that they were mm. drudges. You know, um, I'm. I have not read this anywhere or heard anyone else say it, but I think it's not... But but
0: John's a white middle-class man and he's got a feeling. I've got a feeling, (laughs) I've got a feeling,
1: but I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that if women had not got the vote in 1918 when Ireland was part of the UK, then women's suffrage would not have been brought in by an Irish government. It would have come much, much later, as it did in France, for example, in 1945. So uh, a woman could not go into a pub and buy a pint of Guinness. Many pubs refused to admit women all together. Vincent O'Toole recalls quite late on uh, getting a couple of pints of Guinness for him and a woman and when the barman realised that the other pint was for a woman he insisted on putting it into two half glasses.
0: Well that happened to me once in Northern Ireland in the 90s wow. when I ordered a pint of Guinness in a pub and the guy just poured me a half and said, you'll have that.
1: (laughs) That's insane, isn't it? Yeah, in the 90s. So the marriage bar meant that any woman who worked for the government or a bank or a large organisation, so that means uh, teachers, civil servants, secretaries to the council, whatever, the moment you got married, you had to give up your job.
0: Yeah, and these women who'd loved being teachers had to resign their posts and stay at home cleaning and cooking. Imagine that, you've got a job that you love, you're teaching children, you're providing a service to society, but the minute you get married, no, your only job is to look after your household, your husband. And, of course, a lot of the teaching was done by the church, nuns and priests, so, you know, don't hold your breath for comprehensive sex education. Of course, with no education about sex and no contraception, Young women got pregnant, which was a deeply shameful thing to happen to a family.
1: Yes. And those that could not afford to get the boat to England to get an abortion were sent to the Magdalene Laundries. Mm. Uh, An estimated 30,000 girls and young women were incarcerated in these institutions. And hard to quantify the fear they exercised over ordinary working class families. Uh, They were originally set up for uh, prostitutes, as they called them back then. Uh, But then the definition of fallen women expanded to include girls who got pregnant out of wedlock. And these laundries needed slave labour and pressure was put on families to give up girls who were mentally ill or who had got pregnant or were accused of prostitution. And
0: it was always their fault they got pregnant, yeah, wasn't it? Absolutely. Even though they had no education about how that happened, you yeah. know, cycles or anything like that. Yeah, some of them might and be wrong. no raped. access to contraception. Yeah. Yeah, no laws about consent or no, anything. Yeah, right. it was still their fault somehow yeah. if they allowed that to happen to them. And these would have been working class women with little educational agency, no one of any influence who could speak up for them Challenge the authorities that did this to them. Um, you might have seen the 2002 film The Magdalene Sisters, yeah. And of course, there's a film Philomena, which tells the story of a baby sold to American adopters after it was born out of wedlock, um, with no say for the mother of the child. Absolutely As right. you know, um, Dara O'Brien, yeah, was uh, adopted. Oh, really? And yeah, and he has recently done, I think he's written a book or done a show or something about it. I should know. Sorry, Dara. Um, but he. Always knew he was adopted, but it was seeing the film Philomena oh, wow. made him go and look for his mother. Wow.
1: When all of this came out about the Magdalene laundries, um, after the publication of a government report in 2013 there were nuns who were very angry that they were being criticised in this way. They maintained that they had provided the country with a service. They devoted their lives to running these institutions and keeping these fallen women from seducing more men.
0: Not from being... Oh, I, yeah, I, I can't know. even... It's terrible. It's just too upsetting, isn't it? Because it's just from seducing more men.
1: Well, uh, you know, They were
0: so yeah, the centre of women blame. Were,
1: these women were... Those poor men, John. I know, exactly. They couldn't help themselves. So there was a form of child slavery that basically existed in the laundries and in the industrial schools. Uh, girls were being made pregnant, often by older men, worked all hours in terrible conditions. And these places had prison gates and guards, but the women in them had not been charged with any crime. They'd had no trial. and sent to these places because they were so-called fallen women and um, often their imprisonment there was indefinite.
0: And they're not at the end of a long lane in remote areas, these places—they were right in the middle of towns. Taken in the laundry of all and sundry, government institutions used them, but such was the secrecy surrounding them that when inmates died, the deaths weren't registered and they were buried in these unmarked graves in the ground. Yeah, and. It was illegal not to register a death, but the nuns and priests in the laundries and industrial schools buried thousands of people in these unmarked graves across islands during these decades. Yes. And then when these graves were discovered It was something of a national trauma, right? When people realised what had been going on in the name of religion and they'd got away with this. Yes.
1: And according to Francis Finnegan, who wrote the book Do Penance or Perish? A Study of the Magdalene Asylums, the laundries didn't just shut down because people became aware of the immorality of them. It was also because they ceased to be profitable because people were starting to buy washing machines.
0: So a formal apology was issued by the state in 2013 and a £50 million compensation fund was set up.
1: Yes, Um, and uh, this is what the Taoiseach and uh, Kenny wrote about the Meglin laundries in 2013 when the report was published uh, on this scandal. I believe I speak for millions of Irish people all over the world when I say we put away these women because... For too many years, we put away our conscience. We swapped our personal scruples for a solid public apparatus that kept us in tune and in step with a sense of what was proper behavior or the appropriate view, according to a sort of moral code that was fostered at the time, particularly in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. We lived with a damaging idea that what was desirable and acceptable in the eyes of the church and the state was the same and interchangeable. That's pretty frank words there from uh, the T-shirt.
0: Too bloody right, though. Yeah. Because, of course, the so-called problem of unmarried mothers would have been so much less if they just simply acknowledged that people have sex and that it's a good idea to permit contraception. Yes. Well, for every religion, for every regime that, that has this sort of zero tolerance to... Contraception and sex education, and it never works because people have sex. It's an innate thing Absolutely. that is done, whether there's consent or not. And if you're not going to provide protections, then you better bloody well deal with the outcome.
1: It's so frustrating. <laughs> I think most of our listeners agree with us, Angela. I know. So, I'm not. I'm not. I just. <laughs> I know it's manly. So and also, very, when you, I don't sorry, know, it's so about being a woman. I go. No, that's why that I was It's visceral. The feeling of. That's why I was keen to how unfair pitch this it one is, you, yeah. uh, Soon after it was formed, uh, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. This is a bit. A bit more fun, this bit, Angela. Okay. After its formed the Irish Women's Liberation Movement decided to make a stand on, on contraception and organise what was known as the Contraceptive Train. That sounds so fun. With that planted in your imagination, might be a moment to take a first break.
0: May 1971 and the legendary contraception train is about to pull out of the station. You've heard of the Flying
1: Scotsman. This is the Ovulating Irishwoman. A group of women campaigners from the Irish Women's Liberation Movement resolved to get the train to Northern Ireland, part of the UK, of course, to buy the contraceptive pill with the idea of declaring them at the border and defying the customs officials to confiscate them.
0: Yay, all aboard the contraception train. And when you get to the border with the United Kingdom, a replacement contraceptive bus service will take you the rest of the way.
1: But when they got to the north, they discovered that you can't just buy the pill in a chemist. You have to have a prescription. Mm. So what were they to do? Well, they bought lots and lots of aspirin and decided they would just tell the customs that these were the contraceptives. Brilliant. And the old geezers at the borders wouldn't know any different. Right. Um, but they did also buy condoms and spermicidal jelly. They asked for an IUD, which to my ears sounds more like a loyalist terror group anyway. <laughs> yeah, or some sort of explosive. <laughs>
0: Anyway, the women arrived back in Dublin to a hero's welcome from other women campaigners all holding banners and placards, all ready for a showdown with the customs. And the customs officials were just too embarrassed to even acknowledge what they were. So they just sort of fussed and mumbled and waved the women through as quickly as they could.
1: Yeah, and they, they passed the police station shouting about what they had done <laughs> and they could see the Garda through the window, but the police didn't even look up. They just pretended they couldn't hear or see them. Can
0: somebody look at our condoms? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we bought condoms. Yeah. <laughs> So that's pretty much the way Ireland dealt with all of the difficult issues of sex and morality throughout this period. Yes, it? yes. Just look just look the other way, pretend it's not happening. <laughs> exactly. Um condoms of course remained illegal in Ireland right up until nineteen eighty. Yeah. And it was ruled that they could be prescribed by a doctor who was satisfied that a married couple were using the condoms for family planning purposes. So Ireland became the only country in the world to make condoms a medicine. Yeah. For, 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 an, for an article oh he was God. writing
1: in the publication in Dublin, Colm to Bean decided to test this out. And he, uh, he encountered some very perturbed doctors. He gave a false name. He went round to these different clinics asking for, for condoms. And uh, one of them he met was absolutely aghast at the immorality of giving out contraception. He said, over his dead body. And I wonder what
0: happened soon after that like if they that was up till 1980 presumably then because then you've got the AIDS crisis so at that point they could get access
1: yeah so the pill had actually been prescribed in Ireland since the 1960s but only as a so-called cycle regulator I love this
0: I mean it turned out that Ireland had the highest figures in the world for irregular menstrual cycles oh yes doctor I'm definitely irregular. give me the pill incredible how many women needed to go to the doctor to get the pill because of their terribly irregular cycle
1: so I mean with it being so oppressive in Ireland and the being so stagnant as well, many people got out of Ireland, young people left. Um, for decades, Ireland had been the only country in Europe, apart from East Germany, with a falling population. Wow! Uh, Ireland's main export was its people. Huge Irish populations in New York, Boston, Liverpool and Maidenhead. Of course. <laughs> um, so there was some hope that Ireland would become less restrictive when it joined the common market in 1973 at the same time as the UK. And in fact, at that point, the marriage bar was overturned. But with the other countries around the world becoming more liberal on abortion, opinions hardened on the issue in the Republic. And in 1982, hardliners campaigned for the ban on abortion to be written into the Constitution. Then they held a referendum, which was put to the Irish people, and the Eighth Amendment was passed. By two to one. A massive majority on making it constitutionally illegal uh, to have an to abortion. Have abortion. Uh,
0: and it, was also, it also became illegal to give information about travelling abroad to get an abortion. When I was a student nurse, yeah. um, I, I trained in Tooting yeah. in London. And there were a lot of Irish nurses trained at the same nursing school as me. Yeah. And um, I remember quite often they would have friends come to stay yeah, for a weekend. Yeah, 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 We knew what they were coming to yeah, stay yeah. for, obviously, and that yeah. would happen every now and then. Really awful that, you'd, you know, it's traumatic enough Absolutely. if you have to go through that. Without Not everyone's got to... connections
1: in London, either. Not everyone no, has someone exactly. they know in tooting. Were, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, women's magazines like Cosmopolitan were obliged to print special Irish editions that excluded any kind of small ads at the back that were about women's health clinics Absolutely. or Mary Stopes or anything like Absolutely. that. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Um but the Irish women's liberation movement couldn't campaign on abortion because their own members were too divided on it as an issue. Mm. Um, but the ban on divorce, of course, made Ireland look completely out of step with the rest of Europe and kept women in abusive marriages, meant they couldn't remarry if they were abandoned by their husbands. So, genuine poverty flowed from this restrictive law. Um, and the ban on divorce was also an obstacle to you know, the desired union with the North. Mm. Um, So in 1986, they held a referendum uh, to consider overturning the ban on divorce in Ireland. And guess what happened, Angela? Go on. It was overwhelmingly rejected. Two thirds against, again, two to one against it. That's so
0: mad that they themselves are voting for these things in the mid-80s, voting to... Yeah. Not overturn a ban on divorce. Yeah.
1: So that so um, public opinion was firmly against the idea of letting other people get out of their marriages. Such was the power of the messages coming from the pulpits of the 26 counties. I remember being in County Galway around this time. And one local told me that there were villages around there where not a single vote had been cast in favour of divorce.
0: I suppose if I'm suffering, everyone else well, can. Yes, quite. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so in this case, this wasn't men forcing these values onto women. It wasn't men in power, in yeah. high office, telling women how to... 90,
1: yeah, 97% of the population identified as Catholic. So while over half of Western Europeans never attended church uh, in 1990, this is true of fewer than one in 10 of Irish people. Um, and when John Paul II came to Ireland, about two-thirds of the population attended one of the outdoor masses.
0: Wow, that's almost more people
1: that come to my shows, John. Oh. <laughs> so the progressive people in Dublin, the opponents of this uh, Catholic hegemony, really did have a mountain to climb. In the early 1970s, from her position as a senator, young Mary Robinson had introduced an amendment to a Criminal Law Amendment Act, uh, permitting the sale and supply and distribution of contraception in Ireland. And the reaction against her was hate-filled and deeply personal. The bishop in her parents' parish went out of his way to name her and denounce her evil deeds in front of the whole community, which greatly distressed her poor parents. She received hate mail. She was despised and abused by strangers, which was a big shock to her at the time. She had no idea that the church would play so dirty. But then, nearly two decades on, Angela, she was to take on the Irish establishment again in a much bolder move. And in 1990, Mary Robinson decided to run for president.
0: Yes, Ireland have a symbolic head of state, um, not an executive politician like an American or French president but still the constitutional symbol of the nation. Was Ireland ready to accept a woman in this role, John? Or
1: would Ireland elect yet another Fianna Fáil man to be the head of state? Mm. Or, or could, that, you know, could that role be done by a woman, an outsider from the main two parties that had dominated Ireland since the Civil War?
0: Right, so it's November 1990. Uh, one woman politician is losing power in the UK. That's a, that's a little prime minister called Margaret Thatcher, apparently. I've got no opinion about her, John. I know you haven't. No. We'll have to find out a bit more about who she was. <laughs> Absolutely. But could a more progressive lawyer nominated by the Labour Party become the head of state in the Irish Republic?
1: Well, Fianna Fáil was the uh, party of the Republic, the uh, party of the father of the nation, Éamon de Valera. Now, they were in power for nearly all of the century. Every single president of Ireland could come from Fianna Fáil. What does Fianna Fáil mean? It means uh, had to look this up actually. Sons of Destiny <laughs> uh, sounds like a 1980s post-punk band, doesn't it? And Fina Gael means family of the Irish. So if it was a typical Irish family, then their grown-up daughter would be packing her bag to England to stay a few nights with Auntie Brenda. Quite. Right. Um, anyway, Fianna Fail's candidate was Brian Lenehan, odds-on favourite to be the next president.
0: But the Labour Party and the Workers' Party endorsed Mary Robinson, lawyer and senator in the Irish Upper House. Um, she'd become a senator at the age of 25, the same year she became Professor of Law at Trinity College. That's quite something. Pretty at impressive, is Yeah, yeah. Um, she was independent despite having this Labour... Yeah, endorsement. Yeah. And as we said, she campaigned on divorce law, on contraception, on the decriminalization of homosexuality. And again she found the opposition to her candidacy to be just nasty and personal. What a
1: surprise. A Women in politics. I know. But the mistake that the opponents of Mary Robinson did is to express their misogyny. That's a hard
0: one. White man can't <laughs> say misogyny. Love it. <laughs> the, the
1: mistake that the opponents of Mary Robinson did is to express their misogyny openly and aggressively. If they had been all coded and talked about the sanctity of the family and the Irish home and how wonderful women were as mothers and homemakers, they might have stopped women voting for a woman president. But they didn't. They accused her of being an indifferent mother, accused her of condoning promiscuity and adultery, and this was careless talk from prominent politicians. None of the Cania ministers would ever have spoken like that. One of them said, is she going to have an abortion referral clinic in the presidential residence? They said she and her supporters would put condoms into the hands of young people.
0: That's not where you put condoms, John, just for information listeners doing a your public service announcements. Definitely not where they I go. I have no
1: idea. Charlie Hawhey accused her of being a front for the Marxist-Leninist-Communist Party. And Patrick Flynn, a leading uh, Fianna Fáil minister, who was just back from the Crazy Horse show in Paris? billed as the best nude show in the universe. Bill as the best nude show in the universe. <laughs> he accused Robinson of faking her sudden interest in her family. He said, "None of us who knew Robinson in a previous incarnation ever heard her to be claiming to be a great wife he and about a mother." Great wife
0: and mother, and he's off watching nudies exactly, in Paris. Exactly. That's why typical, I mentioned it. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> and the result, of course, was a furious backlash from the women of Ireland, many of whom had voted Fiona for all their life and were proud of their family connections to the foundation of Ireland. But they all strode stony-faced past the canvassers and voted for Ireland's first woman president.
1: Yes, Mary Robinson won the vote on the second round, having trailed Brian Lenehan on the first round. But suddenly the unthinkable had happened. The head of state was a woman. A woman's place was in public office. Ah. And at the time, there was a general sense of amazement that had actually come to pass. And I remember... Even my mum talking about it, she never thought she'd see that in her lifetime.
0: No. It was an expression of the rage that had built up over decades. And I guess once you take the lid off that, yeah. you know, that pent up, you have to do as you're told and you have to do at the church. Once the lid's come off, you go, oh, we're allowed to say what we yeah, feel now, are yeah. we? Right. Well, in that case, and once it became clear that the Irish establishment would not always hold sway, it just opened up this possibility of much more change to come.
1: Yes. So there's a grim bit now. A couple of years later, there was a story that shocked the whole country. Mm. The notorious X case, uh, as it became known, the story of a 14-year-old girl who'd been raped and became pregnant and who had been prevented from traveling abroad to have an abortion. And one priest said on the radio that he thought the whole story had been made up to discredit the anti-abortion position. But like the opposition to Mary Robinson, this was a political cock up by overzealous politicians. The law as it existed, was not actually meant to be enforced.
0: Everyone knew that hundreds of girls every year went to England for abortions. But the Irish solution, as it was to everything, was to turn a blind eye, which allowed the Republic to think of itself as this holier and more spiritual place. Yeah, But to actually act upon the legislation, to prevent a victim like this travelling was a political disaster. I think, is it yeah, worth well mentioning as- here now? Like, obviously, this is happening in America yes. as we speak. I know.
1: That's incredible. And um, people why it's being worked. prevented, you know, yeah.
0: there was that 10-year-old girl who was... Yeah. Raped and prevented traveling to a state. So why we think, as it is, is in recent history, but it's happening now in the States. Current
1: affairs in the States, yeah. There was a cartoon that depicted the island of Ireland surrounded by barbed wire with a young girl stuck behind it saying, the introduction of internment in Ireland for 14-year-old girls, Mm. a powerful reference to the disastrous British policy in the North in the 70s.
0: Yeah. Women understood that. It meant that women's freedom of movement within the EU was not Enshrined in law as they presume yeah, they, they weren't free
1: to absolutely move. when the dial debated the issue, no woman's voice was heard. The debate was <laughs> well, between, isn't that
0: typical? <laughs> Loads of men talking about what happens to yeah. women's bodies. The debate was the between
1: middle aged men, uh, but the national outrage ultimately resulted in the girl being allowed to go to Manchester to have an abortion. But it was individual cases like this that showed the hypocrisy that people had not wanted to dwell upon,
0: yeah, shone a light on it,
1: yeah, and yeah. uh. Yeah, yes. and it's uh, and a, a tragedy for the actual individuals concerned, of course. Absolutely. But then, of course, came the big
0: scandal that completely blew open the image of the Catholic Church. There was a very popular priest, the Bishop of Galway, Eamon Casey, who was perhaps the most popular and high-profile member of the clergy in the country. He was a regular on The Late Late Show, that popular TV show on RT, hosted by Gay Byrne. And he was personable and outspoken. He'd done the warm-up for the Pope's Mass. He was a Pope's hype man.
1: actually yes, um, didn't, didn't get enough time for a sound check. Yeah, obviously. like all support acts.
0: You'll never believe it, but he wasn't as holy, John, as he liked to make out. Isn't that unusual for I Men of the Cloth? I believe it. I Let's know. take
1: a break there and see what happens.
0: So here we are, we're back, we're discussing um, women's rights in Ireland and we've just been talking about the Bishop of Galway, Eamon Casey. In May 1992, the Irish Times exposed the secret that he had a child, John, in the United States. Shock horror. And not just that, he'd been embezzling money from the diocese to pay for the child's upkeep. When I hear that about... I just can't help but think of Father Ted going, it was just resting in my account. (laughs) So (laughs) He'd wanted nothing to do with the child, and he'd wanted the American mother to put it up for adoption... But she went back to the USA to raise the yes. child.
1: I wonder if she'd been Irish. She might have felt compelled to do what the man of the cloth had told her. Maybe. Um, in fact, Fintern O'Toole suggests that it was the money issue that gave the Irish Times the licence to run with this story. That's what upset people more. Well, it was just that that was like the secret love child of a priest might have been kept secret if it was not that he was corrupt as well. As so This was mm. a time when the corruption of senior politicians like Charlie Hawhey was such an issue in the Republic. and mm. the story was an absolute bombshell. It sort of news you ring up your friends to see if they. They heard it. Um, perhaps because of the timing of it as well, given that the supporting walls of the establishment were starting to crack and Irish people were becoming increasingly cynical about their so-called elders and betters, you know. Mm. Um, and after the scandal came accusations that Casey had sexually assaulted several uh, women. Of course. There was an accusation of rape made against him. But Casey himself was nowhere to be seen. He had slipped out of the country before the first papers hit the newsstands. And he ended up in a rural Catholic missionary position in Ecuador I bet he did that was actually what it said on <laughs> Wikipedia yeah. I looked up on Wikipedia it said he took up a missionary position I went come on someone's having a laugh come though. on yeah. um,
0: what seems so amazing now is that everyone was so surprised that the nation's most beloved priest should have a secret love child he was funding with stolen money because now we know what we know and we all go well duh of course he did <laughs> um, if you remember in Father Ted Bishop Brennan has a child in America and we see him being joined in the bath with a naked woman Yeah, and that was written just three years after this so Irish viewers would have known exactly what that was referring to absolutely yeah
1: so with trust in the church starting to crack there was another referendum on divorce in 1995 and this is only nine years after it had been overwhelmingly rejected it was passed.
0: Yeah, only just. Mind um, fifty point two eight percent for and forty nine point seven two percent against.
1: Incredibly close. My friend, uh, the writer Lissa Evans, at the time she was the producer of Father Ted over there, and she remembers the cast and crew all cheering as the result came through. It meant that Dermot Morgan, the star, could get a divorce and remarry. Wow. And in, in the actual show, they're listening to a horse race, and one of the one of the horses running is and it's divorce referendum, divorce referendum <laughs> is about the line. Uh, so this is a massive deal at the time. Mm. And over the next decade or so came more and more stories of sexual abuse by the Catholic Church of children down the decades, scandals that were not dealt with by the archbishops, but rather covered up. And uh, and their, their only action was to move the abusive priests to a different parish where the abuse would start up all over again somewhere else.
0: Yeah. there of course, there's always been hearsay about abuse of children and stories of individual cruelty from what might be considered occasional bad apples in the Catholic Church. I, I My mum was brought up as right. Catholic. Um And in Kent. But I remember, I'll never forget her telling me a story about. So she was taught by mostly by nuns. Yeah. And at primary school, so really young, sort of age five or whatever, and, you know, kids wet themselves, have accidents, whatever, at primary school. And she says she just remembers this little girl in her class have wet herself and they made her wear her wet knickers on her head for the rest of the day. Oh, that's just so barbaric. I mean, it's just so cruel yeah. and and um, see my mum or one of her brothers I can't remember told when they were eight that they might as well give up now because they were already going to
1: hell God this,
0: to an eight-year-old child this
1: is uh, in uh, Kent not in, in Kent Royal not in, yeah Ireland. so yeah. um yeah. you know
0: Uh, But what had never been considered or proved was just the scale of the abuse and corruption.
1: Yes, yes. So Fintan O'Toole, who wrote the book, I'm sort of was my source for this, focuses on one particular TV series, States of Fear. It's made by a friend of his, a television producer who spent a great deal of time documenting, interviewing and compiling witness accounts that covered... 52 different institutions and incarcerated 50,000 children. So Mary Rafferty listened in depth to hundreds of survivors and had to take enormous care not to make any mistakes that would have been seized upon to discredit the whole programme about the abuse of children in the reform schools and the industrial schools run by the church.
0: RTE wanted to put the programme out in a late slot. Yeah. um, But Mary Rafferty threatened to withhold the master tapes unless the documentary was put out in a prime slot immediately after the news where people would actually watch it and Yeah, see it. and
1: and um, the impact on an Irish society was immense yeah. uh, people had always been vaguely aware that these bad things probably happened but it was just the scale of it mm. the universality of it and to hear the victims talking so undeniably about their own experiences there was no way the church could pull a veil over any of
0: this no with this and all the other stories that came out subsequently, it made the Irish people realise that the clergy had been lying to them. Yeah. This whole time. That the word of the priest was not the word of God. Yes. They weren't infallible. They themselves were in fact probably more holy than their preachers were yes. as people who were, yeah. you know, being good and moral yeah. and all those things. And so as Ireland entered the twenty-first century, the church's stranglehold over matters of morality just no longer seemed unassailable. Yeah. And the number of people in Ireland describing themselves as having no religion doubled.
1: Yes. The abiding sense from Fintan O'Toole's book is that Ireland was controlled for decades using a kind of shared double think, a sense of knowing but not knowing. Mm. They knew the girls went off to work in the laundry but they didn't talk about it or draw attention to it. They knew that some priests abused the trust that was put in them but that was not a polite thing to mention or dwell upon. It's much like the hypocrisy of the Victorians in London or I suppose probably our own hypocrisy now that we buy cheap trainers from Indonesia and knowing their child labour laws are probably terrible. We just don't think about it from more than a second. Um, But Fianna Fáil was wiped out in the general election of 2011, as much to do with the financial crash as the loss of faith in the church and the party of the Catholic establishment.
0: And then, amazingly, in 2015, Ireland became the first country in the world to vote for gay marriage. To go from that to being the first country in the world to vote for gay marriage, that's
1: quite something. Yeah, that's why I was so keen to do this, because the journey that Ireland has made over like 40 years has been absolutely incredible.
0: And they voted for it by an incredible... Considering how... Close to the previous referendum, yeah, yeah.
1: Right?
0: by an incredible sixty-two to thirty-eight percent. And the difference now was that people knew gay people; it wasn't hidden away or lied about. They knew people in their communities yes. that were gay, and people stopped pretending that it didn't exist or yes. wasn't a yes. thing. O-
1: only one county of the twenty-six voted against by a tiny margin—a uh, little uh, Ross Common right Roscommon. in the middle there. Uh, the year—the year before the winner of the Rose of Tralee had come out as gay. Um, You know what the Rose of Tralee is?
0: Well, I know from Father Ted's Lovely Girls Competition. (laughs) It is about the Lovely Girls Competition. (laughs) But
1: it's like like a sort of annual sort of... um, it's Irish like, maiden parade. Like a sort
0: of prize heifer sort of, yeah. Well, it's know. sort of
1: like Miss World, but much more innocent and country girl and pure-faced. You know, you could mm. never have uh, an unmarried mother, no one ever 29, no married no married women, obviously. And it's sort of...
0: You say that makes you more innocent. It doesn't feel no, that. It they're feels pera- quite the opposite. They're presented they? as innocent, yes. these girls. Um,
1: but uh, yes, to have the winner of that come out as gay was mm. quite a big deal. So, you know, Ireland was clearly changing by 2015. This was a huge change. But the biggest... Totem of all in the Catholics' grip on the Constitution was, of course, abortion. Uh, and as we said, the constitutional ban on abortion had only been brought in back in the 80s. Uh, it had always been illegal, mm. but the agitation to get the ban uh, put into the Constitution had occurred in modern times, uh, perhaps as a reaction to its legalization in the UK and USA and right across Europe. I you ever tell the story of that picture in our house, about. So when. In, I remember this picture in my uh, house when I was growing up that my mum and dad used to argue about. And what it was that this French couple we knew had come to stay with us. And what I learned later was that she'd come to England to get an abortion while it was illegal in France. And as a gift, she gave us this picture. And my mum put it up proudly in the front room. My dad, old Irishman didn't agree with abortion, he hated seeing this picture because it reminded him that my mum had accommodated these people to have an abortion really? and thing. So this picture would get moved from uh, to, from the front room to the spare room upstairs and my mum would bring it back down again. It was this battle about the wow. rights and wrongs of abortion played out in my childhood. About good this on picture. your mum it's Good though. on my mum. She was like, yes she's coming to stay with us, yes I'm yeah. going to drive her to the clinic you, and yes. You
0: shut up and sat me. Yeah, shut up Paddy.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, so my dad was like uh, uh, I think by the time he died my dad had probably Probably come around to mm. realising that he had got his morality from the church with which he'd grown up. Yeah. Um,
0: the campaign to abolish the Eighth Amendment had been expected to be very close. Yeah. But yeah, it was incredible. I remember it so well that campaign yeah. in 2015. Young Irish women campaigned by marching through Dublin while they were dragging overnight bags to yeah. sort of symbolise the trips to England they had to make to have an abortion that they weren't allowed to have at home. And of course no one could afford to go to the UK. They might not know how to go about such thing, How many contacts they had to stay with, know exactly. anyone that can help them.
1: Yes, yes. Um so I want to read an open letter to the Catholic clergy written by the great Irish writer and intellectual Connor Cruz O'Brien. I've never read a statement which so happily combines absurdity, complacency, impudence, incoherence and incongruity as that 14-line fatwa issued on your behalf by the Catholic Press and Information Office on Wednesday. I'm afraid your lordships are so accustomed to having your utterances treated with respect that you have forgotten that nonsense is not entitled to respect, however exalted the personages who may choose to offer it to the public. Your lordships have just had a bad couple of weeks as a result of your own gratuitous constitution-making venture of nine years ago. I suggest that you now take a rest. So, So good for him. But it was a great, amazing campaign. Yeah. Um,
0: people travelled from all over the world back to Ireland to vote yes in the referendum. Yes, I remember there being a lot of. There's a lot of Irish comedian Ashling B. Gronje Maguire. Yeah, we're all going home to vote and having a big thing about going home. Hashtag home to vote. Yes, Gronier Maguire did a brilliant thing back in 2015, and there's a an Irish Times piece that she wrote about this it was so inspired but what she did as this campaign and it started off as a little bit of a joke but it really got traction and really got attention her words in this article she wrote about it where she thought well feck it she said if the government thinks my body is their business I'm going to take them at their word and so she started to live tweet every day of her menstrual cycle to Enda Kenny on Twitter just be like hi Enda (laughs) this is what's happening today I'm on day five it's (laughs) a bit heavy whatever and it was just such a Brilliant, simple thing to do, yeah. you know, and it and it really got noticed. And it got, it got loads the conversation of going. Got loads of traction. It
1: got, got commented all around the world. I think um, absolutely. Yeah, it was, good, good it, for it, was it was
0: so brilliant. Yeah,
1: but she at home. She got quite a bit of stick, didn't well, she? Well,
0: people, you know, that will be oh, it's unladylike to talk about yes. these things. You shouldn't talk about period. And she said she was quite surprised by how shocked people were that she was talking on a public forum about periods. Absolutely.
1: Like, you're not supposed to say that word out loud. And you the, know? the interesting thing about it was that it got more coverage outside of Ireland than it did in Ireland. And the same yeah. was true of the contraceptive train, by the mm. way. That was sort of hardly spoken about in Ireland. No. But in the UK and in America, it got a lot of coverage and uh, embarrassed the Irish government that yeah. way.
0: People said to Gwania, this I thought was interesting, said that people said that she was doing it because she was attention seeking and she was trying to get attention for, you know, to raise her profile as a comedian. And she said, you don't know much about comedy if you think that a way a female comedian can raise her profile is to talk more about periods.
1: <laughs> that's a good. really good that's point. A good one. So but it came to the vote in May 2018 and it was won by over 66%, that's over 2 to 1, to mm. repeal the Eighth Amendment for the Constitution of Ireland. A far bigger majority than the campaigners had dared hope for and an incredible turnaround in the course of one generation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's not all done yet. Fianna Fall and Fianna Gael are still dragging their feet on enacting this and there was a news item just this week about them voting against taking this to the next stage. But it was a hugely symbolic change, at least. Yes. inconceivable
0: when the Irish Women's Liberation had formed in 1970 Yes, and as we said they'd not even been able to put abortion on their own agenda because their own members have been so split on the issue
1: but in 45 years the rights and freedoms enjoyed by Ireland's women had been utterly transformed and Ireland's population is no longer in decline but for almost a century after independence Ireland suffered a peculiar form of repression I'm going to do some reading again now Angela there's a lot of reading from me in this one but I've just enjoyed these books I've read about it so much but I thought Fintern O'Toole hit it on the head when he said this. In some ways, the situation in independent Ireland was not unlike the communist bloc, because those with power had acquired it out of dispossession of an old establishment. They were able to see power and privilege as something that by definition belonged to the old enemy and to remain blind to their own position as the new establishment in Ireland. The revolutionary movement slowly worked its way into the nooks and crannies of embedded advantage, but retained the sense of itself as representative of the victimised and the oppressed, and therefore as being itself still excluded by the establishment." So I think that's very interesting. Whenever there is great oppression in the old British Empire, or if you look at like when South Africa changes, a new form of oppression uh, often replaces it.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Whenever one group of powerful people are free to do whatever they want to powerless people without accountability or scrutiny, whether it's Catholic priests in Ireland, or USA's Native American re-education schools, or posh kids in English boarding schools,
1: Yeah, whenever you're not allowed to even ask what is going on, you can be sure that terrible things are probably going on. And that's the moral of this episode. Yes, that is <laughs> it for women. Have I educated you about women's Thank rights, Thank John. Angela? I now
0: understand the plight of of women's liberation in Ireland.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well yeah. it's better than me just doing war all the time. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, well done, the campaigners, male and female, who struggled to make Ireland genuinely free nearly 100 years after it was officially free. Yeah. Well done, Mary Robinson. Uh, I think I'd put Mary Robinson in my all-time cabinet of greatest politicians Um, so thank you for listening everyone
0: remember you can subscribe to the podcast the link is in the show notes Um, do give us five stars and stuff on reviews because that helps push us up the ratings and all that sort of thing and you can also join our We Are History Members Club if you go to patreon.com slash we are history. Lots of people have been doing it, John. Yes, yeah, got some names uh, got here. Got some names. Go on.
1: Uh, LF 984 It's a lovely name. Oh,
0: Elon Musk's daughter <laughs> has signed up. How lovely! Um, uh, Wendy Bayliss Thank you. Uh, Katie Marie Young. Caroline Roosman and Paul Gardiner. To name so but a few. If you'd like to join up, you know what to do, and we will see you
1: next time on We Are History. That's it for Saint Patrick and the Patriarchy. It is. Uh, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. And thanks for listening.
0: Bye.
1: We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, We Are History is a Podmasters production.